But before we come to the message, shall we just pray? Our dear Lord God, we do thank you for this opportunity that we have once more to meet together as a group of your people. Lord, we thank you for the songs that we've been able to sing that have focused our minds upon you. Lord, we just pray that you would help us in this time together now to see you. Lord, and to draw closer to you, we pray. Lord, bless us as we come before you now. In Jesus' name. Amen. I think the, the last time I spoke on this, it must have been sometime near the coronation, because uh, there's one or two references to Charles becoming king this year. Um, and, I, and I was thinking, you know, he had to wait an awful long time, didn't he, Charles, to become king? Perhaps he wondered whether he would ever become king of uh, Great Britain. Um, but imagine the honour that was bestowed upon him becoming the king of, of Great Britain and he's sort of king of the Commonwealth as well, isn't it? I know it's, it's sort of not a king as we would know them in the olden days, but I think it's officially king of Great Britain and head of the Commonwealth, although he is king of quite a few nations within the Commonwealth as well. And I looked it up, there's, uh, I think, 56 nations in the Commonwealth, and he's king of 15 of those. And if you look at all the people within the Commonwealth, that's about 2.6 billion people, which is about a third of the world population. Which is amazing when you think about it, isn't it? But, although he's in this position of great honour, great esteem, during the coronation, he says a few words which I want to draw our attention to this morning. Because during the coronation, each new monarch must swear their allegiance to Almighty God and ask God to help them as they seek to serve God, church and country. So although they're in this sort of great position, you might not say, you might say it's not might and power like it used to be, but it's, it's a position that's held in high esteem within the world. They're in this position under Almighty God and they ask God to help them to do their best as they seek to serve God, church and country. And in that sense, there was a lot in the service that was talking about ruling by service, wasn't there? I don't know, well, I say it wasn't there. It's a long time ago, but you might remember it. There was. <laughs> I'll tell you there was. Um, <clears throat> and I thought that was amazing. And, and, you know, I think when a lot of people look back at the Queen's life, that's the one thing that sort of stands out about how she reigned, she reigned by service, and she was known for her service to the country, wasn't she? I think that was perhaps what people most respected about the reign of the king, whether uh, the queen, whether that will become the case with the king, we've yet to see, haven't we? And there were some words that were spoken at the start of the coronation service, and there were these. King Charles, he was welcomed into the abbey, by a child, and the child said these words. He said, Your Majesty, as children of the kingdom of God, we welcome you in the name of the King of Kings. Imagine that. Your Majesty, we welcome you as children of the kingdom of God in the name of the King of Kings. And, and Charles' set reply to that was this. In his name and after his example, I come not to be served, but to serve. And I was thinking, you know, that's, that's a tremendous words, aren't they? If we can live up to that, 
He won't go far wrong. And if we ourselves took that motto to heart, we wouldn't go far wrong either, would we? Not to be served, but to serve. Following the example of Jesus, the servant king. And I was thinking, you know, the, the Bible says an awful lot about kings. I, I, I didn't work out what percentage of the Bible refers to the kings, but you've got your two books of Samuel, your two books of Kings, you've got your two books of Chronicles, you've got loads of the prophets focus upon the kings, don't they, in the Old Testament. You've got Psalms, you've got Proverbs, you've got the Song of Songs. So many books focus upon the lives of the king, but, but originally Israel was never supposed to have a king at all, were they? They only had a king when they wanted to be more like the nations around them. They asked God if they could have a king. Up until that point, they were led by the priests. You know, people like Moses, people like Aaron, people like Joshua, Eli and Samuel. They were the leaders of the nation of Israel. It wasn't right for them to ask for a king because all along it was God that was their king, God who led them, God who directed them, God who helped them through all the situations that they found themselves in. And rather than helping them as a nation, God said it would, it would, it would be a problem for them and it would cause them issues. And I think we don't have to look very far down the history of the kings to find that that was the case for Israel. You know, God was the king, wasn't he, from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I don't know how many times you find that sort of statement in the Bible, but it's mentioned over and over. God was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He was the one who established Israel in the first place. He was the God of Moses and Joshua, the one who led Israel out of Egypt through the desert and into the promised land. He was the God who moulded the nation of Israel, if you like, and established them in the promised land And rather than suffering at the hands of all the nations that were around them. They became a great nation and they were established and they were a nation at peace. And instead of being fearful of the nations around them, the nations revered Israel and the God of Israel, and they were afraid of Israel because God was their God. They could see the hand of God upon them as a nation. And we see this theme of kingship, the kingship of God, throughout the Old Testament and into the New. It's one of those themes that goes all the way through the Bible if we take the time to look. There's quite a lot of those sort of themes that we can look at but the kingship of God is one of them right from the very beginning in creation until the end in revelation where we have so much about the king of kings and the might and power of God in the final days we find God revealed in three persons father son and holy spirit three working as one ruling together as king as lord God Almighty. But I want us to focus upon Jesus this morning. And I'm just going to go through a few headings that hopefully will just help us to maybe see a little bit more of the kingship 
of Jesus. And we, we haven't got time to go through everything in detail. I've got nine headings, but they're going to be very, very brief this morning. Basically, I'm going to look at a verse that backs up each of the headings. And if you want to, I think it's a good exercise if you've got the time and the opportunity to take the headings and have a look yourself and examine the kingship of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at Jesus' king in creation, Jesus' king in birth, Jesus' king in childhood, his king in ministry and service, his king in death, his king in resurrection, his king in ascension, his king in heaven, and his king in eternity. As I say, can't go through much in detail. So, first of all, king in creation. There's a verse that I must have read over and over, but it's one of those verses when you stop and think about it. It's quite, quite an amazing verse. I think, you know, it's, it's weird, isn't it? Because sometimes you, you, can, you can sort of read scripture. I mean, I don't know how many times I've read this sort of passage before. But when I read it this time, it, it really stood out. So I'm going to read it twice so you, you can take it in. It says this in Colossians 1 and verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. You know, that's an amazing passage, isn't it? So I'm going to read it twice, just in case you didn't get it the first time. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know, that's an amazing statement about the kingship of Christ, isn't it? King in creation. You know, it says visible and invisible. There's, you know, so, uh, there's God, God of the great things, but God of the tiny things, or God of the things that we can't even see. You know, do we appreciate, we, we perhaps don't, but God is behind the things that we can't even see. Perhaps, you know, there, there's a lot that's going on in the world that we don't know about, isn't there? But God is there in each in every situation, even in our own situations, sometimes we don't see the hand of God, do we? It's invisible to us. It might become visible later on. But God's hand is there through the situation, whether we can see it or not. Now, do we believe that? Do we believe that? That's a challenge to us, isn't it? Sometimes we, we pray, don't we? And we get an answer straight away, and that's great. Sometimes we pray and we don't see to see any answer at all. And that's sort of the invisible thing, because God's still at work. Even in the things that aren't visible to us, God's hand is still there. In the big situations, in the little situations, whatever situation it may be, the hand 
of God, the hand of Christ is there for his people. Visible and invisible. I've got to move on because I could spend quite a long time just talking about that. So Jesus is king in birth. And this is, uh, I think I've probably spoke about this before. We get the wise men, don't we, coming to Jerusalem, first of all, saying that we've come seeking Jesus the king. It says this, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And uh, the people in Jerusalem didn't know anything about it, did they? They thought, what's going on here? What are you doing here? And it was only when they did a little bit of investigation that they found that Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem. And so the wise men, they move on, they come and find Jesus, don't they? And they bow down and worship him. We don't read that anybody from the Jewish people joined them on the quest. Herod certainly didn't, did he? But we have the wise men, the kings, whatever you want to call them, coming and bowing at the feet of Jesus. But Jesus is a child, and you think, well, what did they see that nobody else was able to see? Doesn't it seem strange that wise men, kings, if you like, bowed down to Jesus, the king, even as a baby? What had been revealed to them about who this baby was going to be and what he was to become? Jesus, king in birth. But moving on, Jesus, king in childhood. We don't hear much about Jesus in his childhood, do we? We basically have the one story about when it was the Passover and he was about 12 and he was taken up to Jerusalem for maybe his first Passover, I don't know. And uh, as the people are travelling back, Jesus is left behind and it seems to take his parents quite a while for him to realise that he's not there with them and they go back to Jerusalem and they go searching, don't they? Trying to find out where he could possibly be. And uh, he's in the temple, isn't he? He's, uh, he's uh, amazing the, the priests by his knowledge and his understanding of the scriptures that he's able to give when they ask him questions about God and about the scriptures. They're amazed at his understanding and his answers, who he is, and yet he's one that's untaught. How can he be like he is? How can he have the understanding that he has? And his, his parents come along after three days of searching. Can you imagine what that, that would be like? Wouldn't you? They, they must have been pulling their hair out, haven't they? Uh, and he says this to them. He says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you realise that this is where I had to be, in my father's house? It's like, well, where else do you expect me to be? Isn't it, you know? Where else would you expect me to be? And we, we, we see, don't we, a, a little glimpse of Jesus there, who he is, the power, even in childhood, it wasn't hidden, the kingship of Jesus. It says that after that, well, I mean, it depends how you read it, but he says that uh, he went to Nazareth with them and he was obedient to them. Um, But there's a little glimpse, and I'm sure there must have been loads of other glimpses of who Jesus was when he was going through his childhood years that we just don't read about. But it says this about uh, Mary. It says this, uh, it says, his mother treasured all these things in her heart. I bet bet it was a bit of a difficult time as well, but it says that she treasured treasured all these things in her heart and Jesus grew 
in wisdom and stature, in favour with God and with man. King in his childhood. But moving on to Jesus in ministry and service, we could say loads and loads about this, but I'm going to just choose... I'll choose a couple of verses, just one at the start of his ministry and one at the end. In uh, John chapter 1, we have Jesus, he meets up with a man called Nathaniel. And uh, it's the passage where the disciples are being called in the first place. And I can't remember who invites Nathaniel to come and see Jesus. But, but he gets introduced as a man from Nazareth and Nathaniel says something to the effect, Nazareth, what, what good's ever come from Nazareth? He says something along those lines. And yet he gets a little revelation of who Jesus is and he goes from what good can come out of Nazareth to these words, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And he was able to see that in just a few moments of being with Jesus. Are we able to see that when we get a little glimpse of who Jesus is? What a, th- what a change. What good can come out of Nazareth to, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. But we move right through his ministry to the end, the triumphal entry. What did the people cry as Jesus came? into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry. It says these words in John chapter 12, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And it ties that in with prophecy being fulfilled. It says this, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Jesus the King And the Pharisees, instead of recognising Jesus as the king, what did they do? They told Jesus and his disciples to get everybody to shut up. Don't allow them to shout these words out. And what does Jesus say in response? He says, if I tell them to shut up, the stones themselves will cry out my praises. Could you imagine that? Imagine going outside in the car park and the stones crying out the praises of Jesus. That'd be an amazing thing to see, wouldn't it? The stones crying out the praises of God. Jesus King in ministry and service. What about King in death? King in death. Wasn't this Jesus at his lowest point? It wasn't, was it? You know, some people look at the cross and think, oh, it all went wrong there, didn't it? We read that passage earlier where Pilate says, here is your king. And they said, oh, no, no, no. Caesar's our king. We, we don't want this man to have anything to do with us. I mean, that's the biggest joke out, isn't it, for the, the, uh, the high priests and the rulers uh, to say Caesar was their king. Caesar was one of the people that they perhaps hated most of all. Perhaps more than Jesus, they would have hated uh, Caesar. But they said, we'll have Caesar as our king rather than this man, Jesus. And uh, Pilate seems to defy him for a while, but in the end he sort of caves in, doesn't he? And his one act of defiance is this notice that he places upon the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. In three languages, 
And, and I like to think of all the people that pass by that cross. And you know, for a lot of people, that might have been their first view of Jesus, reading those words. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And you wonder, you know, what people sort of picked up as they passed by. Was this the awakening for some people? Jesus, King of the Jews. Would they be aware of what happened then? Would they be aware of what happened later? Who knows? Through that one little act, you might say, well, he could have done a lot more, Pilate. But he wrote this, didn't he? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The, the, the chief priest says, don't write King of the Jews, but only that he claimed to be King of the Jews. And he says, what I have written, I have written. One act of defiance. Not enough really, was it? But we see Jesus, in the end he went to the cross. And what was this Jesus at his lowest? What was it that he cried out on the cross? He cried out, it is finished, didn't he? It wasn't a cry of despair, but it was a cry of victory. It wasn't failure, it was one of success, because on the cross, our sin was paid for. The work of salvation was complete. And that's why he's king in death too, isn't it? Because of what that death accomplished for you and for me but if he's king in death how much more so king in resurrection king in resurrection there's a, a verse that perhaps we don't sort of pick up because it's part of the passage where jesus speaks about being uh, the good shepherd but in that passage it also says this it says the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. You know, Jesus' life wasn't taken from him, wasn't it? It was laid down because of his love for you and for me. It was his offering to us. Imagine that. It wasn't taken from it. He laid it down of his own accord. This is our Jesus. You know, I think, was it Easter? I can't remember if it was Easter when I spoke. But, but, but what, at some point around Easter, uh, I was speaking, and uh, we looked at the tomb, and... Uh, the, the Pharisees and the chief priests, they were concerned, weren't they, about the disciples stealing the body away. And uh, Pilate said something to the effect of, go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. And, and we, we know the tomb was sealed, wasn't it? And there was these guards placed outside to keep the disciples out. And we said this, that all the security, all the things that were put in place were in the wrong place, weren't they? Because they were look, looking on the outside, Instead of being worried about people breaking in to steal the body away, they should have been making the inside of the tomb secure to keep Jesus in. That was where the problem was, wasn't it? It wasn't anything to do with the disciples. The disciples had disappeared into the distance, hadn't they? They should have been trying to keep Jesus in. 
Death could not hold him, could, could it? Death couldn't hold Jesus. He burst out the tomb. There was no way that he was going to stay in the tomb. Death could not hold him. There's, I can't remember what the song is. There's a song that's, that's got that line in. Death could not hold him. Glorious Prince of Life. That's as far as I've got. If you, if you know what it is, you, you can tell me afterwards. Um, but he bro- burst from the grave, didn't he? You know, there was nothing that anybody could do to stop Jesus and the resurrection. He told them all about it before. He told the disciples over and over that he was going to die, that he was going to suffer. And after three days, he was going to be raised again. But they just, but their minds were close to it. They didn't, didn't understand. They couldn't take it in, could they? Their minds were closed to this fact. But Jesus was risen. is risen just as he said. And that is why he's king in resurrection too. We spoke about the disciples running and hiding away. As we come to Jesus in ascension, it's completely different. There's this verse, and again, I don't, I don't think I'll pick this up, up until I was sorted out this message. There's a passage in Luke 24 that says this. He says, When Jesus had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And it says this, Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And I was thinking, well, what a contrast. You know, last time Jesus was taken from them, they were broken-hearted, weren't they? They were fleeing for their lives. They were hiding away, nowhere to be found. Now Jesus has gone from them again, and you might expect that they're in that same situation all over. But instead, it says this, They worshipped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. What a difference. They stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And you think, well, what's the difference here? Why is it so different? What's made these disciples from being those ones that were hiding away to these people that are full of joy and praising God, even though Jesus has gone from them? And there's a passage before that that says a few things. It says, basically... Well, I mean, the, the difference obviously is that Jesus here is risen, whereas there he was taken to be crucified, wasn't he? But Jesus had prepared them for this fact that he was going to be taken from them. It says in, uh, I think it's Luke's Gospel again, yes, it's Luke's Gospel again, in verse 44. He opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written, that a Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. He says, you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. They finally understood everything that Jesus had been trying to tell them all along, that these things had to happen and the fact that Jesus was going from them now wasn't the end but he was going to send them the Holy Spirit to empower them to spread the gospel to all nations beginning at Jerusalem to empower them to live a life for him that's the difference between those men that were broken 
when he was taken from them at the time of Calvary to the time of the ascension where we find them now filled with joy at the temple praising and worshipping God Jesus King in ascension but he's also King in heaven isn't he he's gone back to heaven and he's there now on our behalf in 1 Peter 3 it says this it says he has gone into heaven and he sat at God's right hand with angels authorities and powers subject to him sat at God's right hand with angels authorities and powers in submission to him you know he came on earth to save us for a while Hebrews tells us he willingly gave up all the glory and the splendor of heaven and became lower than the angels in order to die to save sinners such as ourselves but now he's back where he belongs back in his full glory and power in heaven but he's there not just to be back there is he? he's there on our behalf he's there to represent his people he's interceding there on our behalf king in heaven in his glory and power for us preparing a place for us that one day we too can go to be with him king of heaven but king also for all of eternity you know Jesus is from eternity past to eternity future he's the alpha the omega the beginning and the end the one who is who was who is and is to come the one who's the same yesterday today and forever the one that we can commit our lives to because he doesn't change you know he's not like us we, we can change from day to day can't we we can wake up one day and everything's brilliant the next day everything's terrible that's that's who we are isn't it but that's not so with jesus it says in revelation the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ and he will reign forever and ever reign forever and ever so we've seen that Jesus is king in creation, he's king in birth, he's in king in childhood, in ministry and service, in death, resurrection, in ascension, in heaven, and for all of eternity. But I want us to think about this fact, that though he's such a great and a mighty God, he also wants to be our king. Isn't that an amazing thing for us to think about? This great, mighty God wants to be our King. He wants to know and be known by you. The question is this morning, is he my King? Is he your King? Have we accepted him into our lives? Do we know this King for ourselves? This great and mighty King that somehow is interested and knows us as individuals and cares about us as individuals he wants to be known by each and every one of us isn't that an amazing thing for us to think about as we think about the greatness of jesus he's there in the great things but he's there in the detail too the detail for me and for you we'll poke that uh, the detail for me and for you is he your king this morning
we've whizzed through this subject and as I say there's so much more that we could say on it but as I say if you have the time think about those headings go into them in a little bit more detail ask yourself the question is he my king am I following him have I given my life to him am I walking with him day by day may God help us to do so and to commit our lives and our paths and our futures to him. Thanks for listening. Thank you.